Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, episode number 15. Our goal is to help you learn to lead with greater social impact. I'm Father Justin Matthews. And real quick, before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City, working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about Reconciliation Services programs and even support our work at rs3101.org. Now to today's show. Well, welcome today to the podcast. My guest today is Pastor Adam Hamilton. Adam is the senior pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, where he preaches to more than 8,000 plus people a week. Adam writes and teaches from his faith tradition and his experience on life's tough questions, the doubts which with we all wrestle, and the challenging issues that we face today. Uh, pastor Adam, it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Father Justin, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And as we begin, I love when people uh, find out more about our guests. You can see uh, Church of the Resurrection website right there if you want to find out more, cor.org. Well, Adam, I I really appreciate the time that you're making, especially right now. And I really want to dive in because we only have a limited amount of time and you have so many things that I know that you've been thinking about and preaching about and that your church has been active in. But Let's start with a, an inconvenient truth or a difficult truth. You know, I'm I'm a Christian pastor. I'm a priest. And, you know, I, I have to admit, the Christian faith has not always been on the right side of race issues and, and many other issues. So I, I want to begin there. Can you level set us? What, what should be the role of the church in advocating for human dignity and civil rights and, and other issues, Adam? Sure. Well, at the very least, for people of faith, we should, and really people of no faith, we should be people who are speaking up, standing up for those who can't speak up for themselves. But not only for those who can't speak up for themselves, we are people who believe that everyone was created in the image of God. And so if we were created in the image of God, then we need to be speaking for human dignity. We need to be speaking for justice for everyone, uh, racial justice, social justice. I mean, those are just, that's what we should be known for, not the opposite. Unfortunately, the church is a, you know, it's both, it should be both a progressive, an organization that's moving towards justice. But at the same time, we tend to be a conserving organization. And so we're conserving, um, you know, truths. We hold on to, uh, you know, theological truths, ideas that we think are important that we, you know, that we're hesitant to change. And so that's really, you know, that's really important as well. And unfortunately, in our society, when it comes to social justice, social issues, we tend to be more conserving of the status quo and we find it troubling to move away from it. And, and we find people come to church. They, one of my leaders said this week, we were talking about the challenges of people being upset by our you know, focus on racial justice and said, you know, people come to church wanting to be comforted. They want to be encouraged. They want to be, you know, they, they want to feel better, you know, and, and sometimes when we talk about things that are, that need to change, there are things that need to change in us. Repentance is about seeing the world differently, seeing something differently, having a change of mind, uh, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of behavior. And that sometimes means that we have mean uh, means that we have to deal with truths we don't really want to hear. You know, it's 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 hard sometimes. And so, um, yeah, I think oftentimes that and I was in a conversation recently with a group of pastors and 
And they were just being honest, you know, how hard it is to preach, you know, into issues of racial justice. Like everybody agrees racism is bad. It's mm -hmm. just that most people don't see racism, the, you know, their own racial biases, their, you know, their unseen biases. And, uh, and so when we start talking about those things, or we start talking about these larger movements in our society, um, they upset people, you know, and so there's folks like, I can't afford to lose any more members. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to talk about this in a way that's going to help people here. And often we jump in because especially those who, you know, who feel passionate about this, we jump in, in a way that instead of bringing people along on the journey actually pushes them away. If they're not quite where we are, then they feel alienated by what we said and judged, or like we're trying to lay a heavy guilt trip on them as opposed to finding a way to talk to them that causes them to go, oh, yeah, I, I see that. I didn't see that before. And so we struggle with that. It's, I, I tell people when it comes to prophetic preaching, it's easy to poke people in the eye and hmm. offend them. It's harder to actually speak in a way that influences them and sees them repent and change. And that requires a different level of tact than just blasting people with what you believe is your truth at the time. Yeah, I, you make a great point that oftentimes when we talk about a truth, particularly if you're coming from a faith tradition, it's actually a lot easier to just sort of lay aside somebody else's beliefs, shut your ears to what they're saying and just say, well, let me, let me tell you what truth is. And when it comes to something that is so ingrained within, first of all, the human heart, as you know, structural racism, racism, these kinds of things are not just issues within our politics or within the formation of our country, but they go even deeper than that. I mean, as I think you and I would agree, these are issues of human sin. This is the dark, slimy underbelly of humanity that, you know, as Christians, we believe that God came to save us from. And I think that the church, when we've been timid, you know, when we haven't been willing to really um, live that sacrificial, crucified belief system, when we haven't embraced that, we've shied away from really speaking to the injustice, the indignity, um, and the need for the church to actually pro proclaim what it believes. And you know, we have a lot of different people, uh, Adam, who listen to this uh, podcast from all different traditions. And of course, I'm speaking from my tradition as an Orthodox Christian priest. But I was impressed by the fact that your church just released, I think on June 18th, uh, a statement entitled A Vision for Racial Justice. And if I can grab an excerpt from that, in that statement, you wrote, we believe that all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to condemn racism in every form, whether unconscious or conscious, systemic or arbitrary. And then you went on to say this important point, racism is a sin and it is antithetical to the gospel. Uh, that's a powerful statement that doesn't leave any room for, you know, that gray in between. Thankfully, tell me more about how you and, and your leadership team and your faithful have handled race and faith at Church of the Resurrection, especially in light of the recent protests and the murders and, and the news that we see today. Yeah, we started when we started the church 30 years ago. This was this was one of the things that was important to us to be able to say, uh, we look at Kansas City. We are one of the most racially divided cities in America and racism is a sin. And how do we and we have a lot of history. I mean, there's a lot of structural racism sort of baked into the system. So I grew up here in Kansas City. Um, you know, it, it has the true dividing line where, where Thelma's Kitchen is located, where Reconciliation Service is located, as we know, is a major dividing line in our city for a very long period of time. So for 30 years, we've been saying, OK, we want to be a part of tearing down that wall. We want to build bridges. We want to be a part of 
of addressing the issues of race in our city and helping our city look more like the kingdom of God. Figuring out how to do that is another question. So we've spent, you know, we've had task forces and study teams. We spent a lot of time listening, trying to read, study, understand. We've made a lot of, uh, you know, we've aimed at this a lot in a lot of different ways. And um, and one of the things most recently, the last three or four years, Emmanuel Cleaver uh, III, who's pastor at St. James United Methodist Church, um, our two churches came together to create a what's called Allies for Racial Justice. We've been looking at, you know, leadership teams working together, trying to get our people in relationship, all of that aimed at addressing race and racism. So and every year there's sermons where I'm preaching into this. When, uh, when George Floyd died, that you know, I had spoken out uh, through my e-note when uh, Ahmaud Arbery died mm. and ad- addressed that. I was in the middle of a sermon series. and I thought, OK, I'll, I'll address it in my e-note. We prayed into it that weekend, but I didn't stop to preach about that. And I thought, OK, that's just the deep south. It's just, you know, this this is, uh, you know, this isn't everywhere. Of course, I know it's everywhere. But, you know, that, uh, you know, and then the next thing is Travis Miller in Edmond, Oklahoma, who's you know, J.B. Hunt truck is blocked in by the HOA president in a gated neighborhood. It looks yeah, awful, it was a horrible like video. South Johnson County. You watch 37 minutes of it and you see the guy crying at the end. And it's like, yeah, this is just horrible. And then and then, you know, uh, Christian in uh, Christian Cooper in New York City, Central Park. The guy's watching the bird, you know, watching birds. And he's, she, you know, and you're watching this stuff and you're going, yeah, no, this isn't just in the South. This is we still have problems. And then then George Floyd becomes the climax of that to go, okay, you gotta you gotta say something, you gotta do something, you know. And so anyway, um as that happened, then we spent we stopped everything else we were doing, spent three weeks focused on what Jim's Jim Wallace calls America's original sin of racism. And and again, part of what I'm trying to figure out as a pastor is I've got, you know, with, with the coronavirus, we got people joining us on television, you know, we're now on TV and on the, you know, we, we had like 30, 40,000 people a weekend who are worshiping with us. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I, I don't even know those people. How do I speak to them? And they, you know, they started joining us because they were looking for hope, but now I'm going to shift gears really fast. And we're going to talk about something that's going to be harder. And I told our, uh, you know, some of my team, I said, okay, the moment we step into this, you're going to watch those numbers drop. Mm. You know, they're going to drop because these are harder things to say and talk about. And uh, so anyway, we, right after George, George Floyd's death, we, uh, my sermon was a dream still deferred. And we, we jumped into understanding uh, bias in ourselves. And when bias, we all have biases. When bias relates to race, we call it racism. And there are things, there are lessons we learned and things we picked up when we were growing up that feed into this. And we don't even understand it. We don't even, we don't even think we have them. And, and some of those are related to, I wrote a book a year ago on fear called unafraid. And, uh, those fears that we have, you know, our amygdala, our body's designed to, you know, recognize and anticipate fears to imagine possible threats not fears, but possible threats to our lives. And we catastrophize those things. And and some of our information, the data inputs that we have, have to do with what we watch on the news. It's the things we were taught when we were children. It's, uh, you know, all of this stuff goes into deciding what's a possible threat. And so much of racism and bias has to do with our fears and our fear of the other and, and how we're you know, how we're thinking about other people as a possible threat. Somebody who's different from me, they're a different religion, or they are a different race, or they live in a different place or different socioeconomically. And, uh, and we have to unlearn some of those things that we learned, we didn't even realize we were learning along the way. And that's, and that's part of what we were talking about in the first week. The second week we talked about it was, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to skip vacation, and I'm just going to preach on this this week. And then, and then we had the, the uh, protests, and I'm like, okay. Mm. And, and the president announced, you know, we were going to have troops, American troops, 
combating the protesters, Americans. I'm like, okay, I'm going to postpone another week's vacation because we got to talk about this, you know? And so right. I went down on the plaza on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday that week or Wednesday and Thursday that week, you know, to walk with people and to listen and to hear stories and to be able to say, this is not okay. And, and, uh, and so we focused on that. And then we had Emmanuel Cleaver preach because after the first two weeks, I thought, okay, I had African-Americans speak in both of those sermons, but I thought, I think we actually need to hear from an African-American pastor. And so I mm. asked Emmanuel, who's our partner in Allies for Racial Justice to speak. And then during that whole period of time, we were working on this statement and it started with our staff, our lead staff to our staff. And then we thought we need to speak just not just to our staff. And so we got our church council involved and there was a team of about 10 people in our church, uh, five laity and five uh, staff. Uh, half were people of color working on this statement and uh, it kind of perfected it and finally came out. And uh, so that came out last Friday. And, and I'll just tell you, that's created some, you know, no small amount of frustration for some people and created, you know, more conversations and in some cases, anger on the part of some people as well. Well, we're going to link to that in the, in the show notes, but if I'm going to pull it up right here and just take a look, I mean, you, first of all, you said some powerful things. I mean, the group came together and talked about both systemic and arbitrary racism. You called racism as sin, but you also, you know, used words like privilege that, that set people off, you know, and, and you talked about repentance that sets people off. You know, you've got a lot of things in here that are really strong statements and they're needed. They're statements that I think people, um, I've spent a lot of time personally working on those things and understanding them. Some of them are academic statements. Some of them are emotional, religious, or moral statements. But I would imagine that your reaction that you got from the congregation or from the community at large was pretty mixed. Let's talk about those people, though, who didn't receive it well. Those who are already in the choir, you know, you're singing to the choir, and they're glad to see you, you know, put something strong out that they can stand on. But let's talk about those members of the congregation or of the community who've reached out to you and had trouble with it. What was their reaction? How did you handle that? Yeah, well, it's a wide array of reactions, but uh, I'll just mention several of these. One is, uh, for some people, Black Lives Matter has to do with a particular organization. And so when they look at that organization, they uh, they may see things on there that they disagree with or that they think are too radical or too whatever. And, you know, for me, Black Lives Matter isn't isn't about an organization. I, I don't know enough about the Black Lives Matter organization to say I want to say I agree with everything they've said. Um, Black Lives Matter is just a fundamental philosophy and statement that I think is important. And people want to know, you know, typically the response, as you can imagine, is, uh, well, wait, I, you know, somebody wrote me and said, I want to go to a church where all lives matter. And I'm like, wait, do you really think we're saying all lives don't matter? Of course, all lives matter. But but in the midst of that, you know, if there's one part of, say, if we're just talking Christians, the scripture says if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer, right? We come alongside them. And I was thinking about a couple of years ago, you know, with the uh, protests in, in the South, uh, in, in Virginia, West Virginia, about uh, the Jewish community and, you know, blood and land. And, you know, we will not be, you know, we will not uh, be replaced or whatever the, the statements were that these uh, white nationalists were saying, and, you know, we organized events to support the Jewish community and mm. after shootings in the synagogues, like what we needed to say then is Jewish lives matter. And, uh, and when a, a mosque in our community was defaced a, couple, a few years ago, we needed to say, you know, Muslim lives matter. And, uh, and so, you know, when immigrants were being, you know, characterized in certain ways, we need to say immigrant life, lives matter. And at this point, part of the reason, and we all know this on this broadcast, I'm suspecting, but, you know, part of the reason why we have to say black lives matter is because right now, a lot of black people don't feel like their lives matter as much as white people's lives. And there's an important role to say. So making that statement, but for some people it was, 
wait, you're supporting this particular movement and that particular movement and that not movement, but that particular organization also speaks a lot about uh, voting out certain people in office and voting in other people. So now it sounds like it's a democratic thing that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something supporting the democratic party. I'm a pastor of a church, 49% Republican, 26% Democrat and 25% independent. You know, it's a, it's an interesting uh, group of people. So if they feel like, well, wait, we're chaining, you know, we're linking resurrection to a particular party that wants to, you know, a particular group that's supporting a particular political party. And it's like, no, that's not what we're trying to say. This, this phrase and this idea I don't know how you can disagree with this idea that black lives matter. And of course, all lives matter. But when one group is made to feel like their lives don't matter, we have to speak to them. And uh, so anyway, a friend of mine said something I thought was interesting. Maybe he got it from somewhere else. I'm not sure. But his sister has breast cancer. And Mm. and he said to somebody who would, you know, was upset, he said or, you know, challenged. He said, um, you know, I think cancer research is important in every area. But my sister has breast cancer. And right now I'm supporting breast cancer. I'm supporting mm-hmm. breast cancer awareness because right now my sister's sick and I need to be involved in that. And I think there, he said in the same way, I think Black Lives Matter is important. We're saying these are folks who've been hurt and they're experiencing pain. And right now we need to make clear that all lives matter, but this particular group needs to know, we need to know, and we need to say that Black Lives Matter to us. And so anyway, that was one piece of it. You know, but there were others too, uh, when you talk about white privilege, um, and if, you know, some of your listeners have, have read, uh, you know, white fragility and, and, you know, if you're doing training and you're, you know, diversity training and inclusivity training, a lot of these things, these terms can be helpful for some people and, and off-putting for other people. And so what I hear from folks is, uh, wait, I don't have any privilege. You know, I, I grew up and especially folks who grew up in relative poverty You know, I grew up in poverty. I had to work my, I paid for my own college. I worked my way through and I think everybody has that opportunity. And, you know, I, my family lived in poverty for a period of time when I was in high school and, uh, my stepdad left and we were, you know, we had nothing, you know, literally our home was taken away. We, you know, we were brushing our teeth with water out of the back of the toilet, you know, at one point. And, uh, and so, you know, part of what I've said is, look, if, if if you take me who was experiencing some level of poverty at that point, and you take somebody who's experiencing poverty east of Troost, uh, who is African-American, and we're both, you know, we might both have experienced some measure of poverty, but I will tell you, I started out with advantages that I didn't even understand. And part of that's because 80, 87% of the population or 85 or 82% today, you know, they have a skin color that looks like mine. And that makes a difference. And, and my, the way I was acculturated and the way the culture is set up, it all makes a difference. It gives me advantages that, that other folks have not had. And I have to be able to understand that, that there's some people at a disadvantage and, uh, and I've got to, you know, I'm not, I, I don't regret the fact that I have those, you know, that I had a, you know, parents who read to me and I had, you know, economic benefits that other people didn't have. I just have to recognize not everybody started with the, from the same starting point in that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important too, but those are, those are some of the kind of things, you know, repentance. I had one man who's spent his whole life. He's worked for social, you know, racial justice. And he says, I, I've, you know, worked really hard at this. I really believe this. Why, why would you say I have to repent? What do mm-hmm. I have to repent of? And I said, well, repenting is literally, you know, the metanoia in Greek. It is to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to change of behavior. And I said, so, do you believe there's racism? Of course there's racism. I've worked against it my whole life. I said, have you done as much as you think you could have? Well, yeah, yeah, maybe not. And I said, you know, for me, I've been silent too many times. Uh, mm. I've tried to speak up, but there are many times I was silent. And, uh, cause I didn't want to have to deal with the, 
emails I'd get and the people leaving the church, the people mad. And so I just was kind of quiet. I was a little more quiet than I should have been. Mm. I, I repent of that. You know, I repent of the fact that I have fears, innate fears that that lead me to, uh, you know, that, that I have to work against. Um, so anyway, yeah, those are the kind yeah. of things that we were hearing. Well, I appreciate you bringing all of that up. And I think there are a lot of leaders who are listening who want to take action. They want to move beyond silence. They want to learn. They want to repent. But it's very difficult. And, and sometimes people have told me that they just they don't know where to begin. And I think 98% of the people in the world are, are of goodwill. They want to do right. And very often, though, uh, they, they just don't have a starting point and they, they need someone to guide them. But they actually need to do the hard work themselves of, of listening to the lived experience of others and beginning to unpack their own issues. And, and that's really hard to do. And you started to share just a little bit about your story growing up, but I'd like to just learn a little more about what can you share from this experience uh, or how you've grown in your role as a leader? How did you unpack racism and implicit bias in your own life? How are you continuing to do that? Yeah. Well, you know, having grown up, so I grew up in Johnson County and uh, went to Prairie Elementary School. I don't think there was another African-American uh, teacher or uh, student at the school when I was there. So, you know, what I learned, I learned on TV. And, uh, you know, in Johnson County, there are many folks who are like, you know, don't go on the other, you're a white kid, don't go on the other side of truth or whatever. I don't know that anybody, I don't remember anybody actually telling me that, but somehow that was the message that I got along the way, whether it was watching the, you know, crimes on television or whatever else, so that I was afraid Right. And and I, you know, I was born in 1964. Uh, you know, so the civil rights rights acts are just being passed. There were riots that were happening in Kansas protests, but then riots happening in Kansas City when I was a kid. I don't really remember that, but it must have shaped a little bit of how I, you know, how I saw the world. I mean, the world, it's just not been that long since these were, mm -hmm. you know, in, you know, part of our not our only our culture, but our law in our city, you know, the swimming pool shut down when they, you know, when the Swope Park swimming pool shut down because now everyone had to be allowed to swim in the same pool. That was when I was a kid, I think. I right. believe that was well, it might have been a little right, right before I was born. But anyway, so I think, you know, I was always, I mean, from the time I was a kid, I don't remember when, but you know, my teachers did a good job of Dr. King was a hero from the time I was little. I learned his speeches, you know, I I uh I always felt like I had this longing for, you know, justice and racial justice, but I didn't have a clue. I mean, I didn't know the stories. And so part of this is actually listening to people's stories. And that's true in any area of life. It's true when you're talking about LGBTQ people. Like if you don't really actually take the time to listen to somebody's story and their pain and their life experience, then it's easy to have one sort of preconceived idea. And uh, when it comes to you know, there, there's not one African-American experience. There's not one Anglo experience or LGBTQ experience. It's just listening to people and hearing their stories is, is what begins to change us from the inside out. All of a sudden, I know you, I care about you, and I've heard your story, and it changes how I see the world. And so a lot of what we've done with Allies for Racial Justice at Resurrection is trying to get put people together in small groups and connecting with people and just listening to each other's stories, which I find changes us. You know, and that's not the whole answer, but that is one piece is when you actually listen to people's stories, you, your view of the world changes. And when you try to walk in somebody else's shoes, and, and that's where I think the real power is. I don't think it's so much in statements. You know, we, we, as the largest church in the Kansas City area, we wanted to make a statement. We wanted to make a bold statement. I, I do wish we'd had some footnotes in it that would have said, hey, this is what this phrase means to us. And this is what this phrase means to it. Because I think it would have helped some of our people go, oh, okay, I get that. Because I don't, mm -hmm. I think there was some, you, you start off 
with a bold statement, but without helping people come come up come along with you, you know, bring them up to speed, it, it may feel off-putting to some. But I think more than making bold statements and more than marching or showing up on a Pray on Truce event or whatever is actually taking the time to listen to people's stories, asking people who are your coworkers, friends, neighbors, would you share with us your story? And here at Resurrection, we've got a class right now called the Beloved Community where we're, it's led by people, our pastors of color and they are uh, inviting other people to share their stories. We have like 1200 people sign up for this class. They're doing it on mm-hmm. Zoom every Wednesday night and then they're breaking into small groups after that. And there's just something that happens when you hear people's stories that mm-hmm. helps change your perspective on life. And suddenly you go, oh, well, yeah, maybe I did have some privilege that I didn't know about, or maybe mm-hmm. there are some biases that I have I didn't realize. Maybe I have some racism internalized that I didn't know about. Yeah, it's easy to dehumanize somebody when you don't actually know who they are. And I remember, uh, I'll just share a brief story of my own. I was in Thelma's kitchen on Troost, and there was a, a African-American trans woman who was in the bathroom. And she was obviously having a really significant um, psychotic event. And, you know, there's all sorts of different people in Thelma's. It's a restaurant, not a soup kitchen. And so it was really um, challenging because she was really, really suffering. And I was called down and I came to the bathroom door and I knocked on the door and I actually thought that she was in some sort of medical condition or a harm to herself. And so I I opened the door and when I did, she was um, in a fetal position on the ground next to the toilet and um, just sobbing. And I sat down with her on the floor of the bathroom and instead of you know, rushing to call police or rushing to call an ambulance. I had been challenged recently at that time to actually listen more. And so I sat and I just began to listen and to kind of have that ministry of presence. And as I did, she was actually reliving the moments in her life when her mother had been killed and she was hiding in a closet. And, you know, we so often look at people and say, you know, what is wrong with you? And I was taught by some of my uh, accountability partners to say, what happened to you? And to really begin to listen. And I think what you're saying is so important. It's difficult to do, though. So what do you say to a leader who works in the for-profit sectors, not, you know, not a pastor, not independently wealthy, volunteering their time or not in the nonprofit sector? What? What do you say to them? Where do they begin? I mean, certainly you've got this, sounds like an awesome resource with the Zoom meeting. And if you go to core.org, hopefully you can find a link to some of those resources. Yep. Um, but on a personal level, Adam, where, where do we begin? Where does someone who wants to be a social leader start to listen? And how, what are the mechanics of that? How do they do that? I think that's great. I think... Um... So I do think finding the people that you can listen to in your organization are important, inviting people to share with you their stories. Um, I think there's a, there's plenty of books out there that you can start to read. Um, I've just started another one. So White Fragility, I was reading a couple of weeks ago. Right now, I'm, I just started a book on, uh, so you want to talk about race. But there's a whole host of books that are out there. And, and in fact, um, we're trying to assemble a resource of things, a, a set of books that people can listen to or, or uh, read that will help them be able to think about this. But I think the best is, again, face-to-face conversations with people. And um, we, you know, I've, we have folks in our congregation who do this training as, you know, for their vocation, for their career. I've got a, somebody who's been doing it in the military for 30 years, a, a, you know, a real leader now she's working with the Department of Defense. And part of what I'm asking is for her and some others in our congregation who do this for a living to help us design additional training so that we can 
we can help people, you know, we can help people listen, help people understand and hear. And, and, uh, but I do think a lot of it has to do with stories and it, and it has to do with people. I love this image of you, Justin, at, uh, you know, sitting on the floor with this woman in the bathroom, you know, who's, who's in pain. I think that's what Jesus did is I think he spent time with people. He listened, he cared, he paid attention, right? That idea of paying attention. I think of the woman who, you know, touched the hem of his garment and he knew he sensed somehow there was a woman who was hurting and in need who touched me, you know, and he's looking around. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is, that is really important paying attention. And, and I think there's a lot of times there's people out there who are saying things or doing things that just really irritate us. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got emails about the, somebody who talked about it. I don't remember who it was talked about, you know, wanting to take down statues of Jesus, the white Jesus, the lily white Jesus. We need to take down these statues. Well, okay. So I'm not in favor of taking down these statues. Uh, I am in favor of trying to hear what is behind that. I'm in favor of going, okay, well, help me understand why, what does that mean? And when, when I try to understand that, then I understand that for some people, you know, Jesus has been portrayed as a, you know, white guy for a very long time. And that was part of you know, that, that added to this sense of, okay, so the white people are the ones who look like God, you know, God came in the flesh, he came as a white person. And so, you know, there's a whole lot that's underneath that. So I don't have to say, we're going to take down the Pieta in Rome and, uh, and discard it to be able to say, okay, let me hear what this person's saying. And, and to, and to put on hold for just a minute, my immediate visceral reaction to this Mm. and to be able to try to understand why is this person saying this? And is there any truth underneath? I don't have to agree with everything they say, but is there some truth underneath it? And I think that's, I think it's critical always. Yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts though, about when somebody wants to begin that journey and they begin to listen and they begin to be overwhelmed with the things that they're learning. I think people can get paralyzed. They, especially if white folks who have positions of authority begin to sort of wake up to the um, things that they didn't see before regarding uh, racial and economic inequity and other issues. Um, Where do they turn to unpack those things? Uh, Certainly the church plays a role, but where else should they turn? You've mentioned some books. Um, what do they do once they get beyond the initial phase and then begin to want to grow in a continual way? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question. I'm not sure the answer, to be quite honest. I mean, I think a lot of it is about relationships. A lot of it is about looking to see where do I need to speak up where I've been silent before? What are the ways that I can use my influence to, and, and this has like here at Resurrection, one of the things we recognized is we need to do a better job of actually recruiting and looking to hire people of color. So uh, our pastoral staff, I think is 20% of uh, people of color, but uh, the rest of our staff far below that. And we've not, you know, we end up hiring people who know people, right? You know, know, we have a position come open, we invite applications. Most of the people who apply are people who know resurrection, maybe they go to resurrection and a high percentage of our people are, are, you know, Caucasian. And so, you know, we're saying, okay, we have to actually, we have to work harder at this. And we have to be more intentional about a whole lot of things. So it has to do with, you know, who's leading from the from the chancel when we're when we're leading worship. Who, how are we uh, inviting more African American voices to preach? How are we, you know, so we're 
we're making some conscious decisions. How do we invite people? We, you know, we moved one of our pastors into a position of pastor of community justice, one of our African-American mm. pastors, asking her to be a part of our leadership team where we're making decisions so she can be listening and hearing in a different way. Well, we need more than just one pastor who's on our team doing that. And, uh, and we have several others who are doing the same on a broader team, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of things that we can be doing better. And, you know, I'm embarrassed that we haven't thought to do those, you know, that, there's another place to repent, you know, is, is I feel like we could have done a lot better job o- over a long period of time and, uh, and just have not. And so I think that's where a lot of companies are right now too. I think that's a really good place to be is to say, okay, where do we, how do we go about recruiting? How do we go about putting people in positions to listen and understand, you know, we've been trying over a long period of time to say, okay, when we're using videos, when we're using, you know, when we have photos or whatever, how are we making sure we're including everybody in those? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's so easy, you know, resurrections is, is reflects the community around the Leewood campus anyway, reflects mm-hmm. the community around us in South Johnson County. We're 90% plus white. So you got to really work at saying, okay, when we're producing interviews or videos, or I'm talking to different people that I'm going to go out of my way to find the 10% of the congregation who don't reflect a white, you know, presence, visual presence, or even experience and invite them to be sharing their stories. And so we're trying, we've been trying to do that for some time, years now, but I think we can do a better job of that as well. Well, I think you've, answers, but... no, I think you've actually hit on a couple of things, whether, whether they were consciously formulated or not. I mean, one of the things is just being intentional to try to be authentic and making that a purpose. I think the second thing is you acknowledged the deficits and have done that publicly. You've done that openly and you've gone about the process of repentance or, or metanoia, changing the mind, turning around. I think the other thing that you did is you've, You've said today that leaders need to move beyond sort of charitable intention and workshops and awareness, and they need to get to operationalizing these priorities. And you did that by lifting up somebody to really lead in that area. Um, and, And I think those are a lot of things that companies need to start with. There are a lot of things that leaders can do. They're not that complicated. And you don't, you know, I don't think you have to have everything perfect, do you? You don't have to know everything before you begin, do you? No, absolutely not. And part of what you've got to recognize, I think, is whenever you start to do something, there will be somebody who's critical. And I actually find mm-hmm. that both on the left and the right, you know, when, when you're we're kind of Methodism is sort of this, you know, via media, this middle way, you know, where we're mm-hmm. trying to hold together in tension, these, you know, the left and the right. And uh, and so I find, you know, when, when I started into the sermons, we had an, an evening conversation one night with uh, uh, three of our pastors of color. And I just wanted to try to listen while well, I asked a question that somebody said, you know, you shouldn't have asked that question. They're probably mm-hmm. right. But the, the, you know, bl- uh, eventually I get blasted, you know, and that's okay. I mean, that's just part of it, but you know, you're going to have uh, my first sermon. I preach, I had, you know, several people like, you know, you, you've missed an opportunity. You sh- you could, you should have said this or that. I'm like, Hey, that sounds like a great sermon you had in mind. I'm trying to shepherd this congregation the best I can as a senior pastor, you know, and I'm going to blow it. I'm going to make mistakes. And, right. and I think that's also part of where we get stuck, especially, you know, white folks, we get stuck because we're afraid of making a mistake. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? And then somebody gets mad because I was insensitive here. I said the wrong thing. And, and there will be people who will criticize you and will just tell you how you just blew it, you know? And, you, and so we get defensive about that. It's like, well, it's better if I don't say anything than be criticized there. And then on the, on the other side, we have people who are critical that you're even saying anything at all. Right. And I think somewhere, somewhere you got to find a voice and say, okay, I might mess up on this. I might get it wrong, but I'm, I'm still going to, I need to say something. And yeah, in business and entrepreneurship, we sure embrace the kind of modern idea of fail fast pivot. 
And I think we need to make room for that for ourselves in these really difficult conversations, whether they're racial, religious, economic, political. Um, right. Don't be afraid to say you're wrong. Well, I, we're bumping up against time and I really appreciate it. But I always end every podcast with this question. And, and that is that I want to know what advice would you give to leaders in any sector when they want to embrace the idea of increasing their social impact, if they want to become social leaders in their leadership lane, what are two or three things that they need to do that you can share from your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, before I answer that question, um, I am just want to be clear that that doing this is not easy, you know, mm. it, and it requires a, a little modicum of courage, you know, to well up to say, I'm going to address things that are, that are issues that face our society, you know, places where things that are, you know, things are broken in our society. And, and, um, and then you've got to figure out how, especially if you're in the business sector, uh, but in the church world too, you know, you got to figure out how do I address this in a way that helps people here? And not just says, you know, and how do I make sure I've done my research and I've done my homework? So I'm not just blurting out my latest conviction or the thing that I feel, um, you know, my soapbox, but how do I actually study to know what I'm talking about and Mm -hmm. then say it in a way that helps people come along? Because you either say things in a way that alienate them or you say things in a way that bring people along. And I've done both. I've tried very hard to uh, say things in a way that help people go, oh, wow, I hadn't seen it that way before. And they have a, a real conversion. But sometimes, you know, Sometimes it, it happens where you've actually pushed people away. And, and that's, you know, sometimes people are going to leave. I, I'm reminded John 666 is an easy verse to remember if you think of 666. And in John 666, uh, it says that many people turned away from Jesus. Many of his disciples turned away. And, uh, and so he knew what it was like to say things that people were offended by and they turned away. And so when, you know, it hurts when you have you know, when you have uh, customers who send you a note and say, I'm not going to do business with you anymore because I don't like what you said mm-hmm. there. A lot of times they don't even tell you, but they just stop doing business with you. It hurts when your members tell you, I can't come to this church. This week I had a note from a woman who said, you know, I uh, what happened to the pastor who led me back to Jesus, who, uh, you know, I want to take notes every time you preached about the Bible. But now, you know, you seem to be preaching about these issues that, you know, you, you have this need to be a social, you know, a civic leader in this area. And I'm like, Okay, I don't think that was what was motivating me, but you know, I, it was painful. You read that and you go, "Really?" Mm. Like I think Jesus cares about all this stuff. I think this matters to him. If it, if he doesn't care about this, then what does he care about? But it's going to be those are the kind of comments you're going to get sometimes, and and you got to be okay with the fact that that people will sometimes be upset and sometimes they're going to reject you. And in the end, looking back over the 30 years of pastoral ministry here at Resurrection, most of the things that I'm actually most proud of, uh, proud's not the right word, but that I'm you know, were places where it took a little bit of courage. I had to screw up my courage to be able to speak about something that was hard. And there were some people who were mad. And yet in the end, I think it was the thing that God wanted me to do. And I would say for, you know, civic leaders, business leaders, sometimes it's, it's figuring out how do I address that in my, in my realm. So uh, in your area of influence, so using your influence for the maximum good, all of us have influence. We have people, we have, you know, we have a platform of some kind and uh, and using it in a way that can can bring about the most good. So I think about Ron Heifetz at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Hmm. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, Leadership Without Easy Answers. And he has this way of uh, talking about, um, you know, how you go about finding places where you need to step in. And he talks about the world as it is, and then the world as it's supposed to be. 
right? And the goal is to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be. So part of what you got to figure out is how's the world supposed to be? Like Jesus mm-hmm. talked about that as the kingdom of God. If you're a business leader, what do you think the world is supposed to look like? Like, like put your best thinking into what should our city look like? And then where are the places where there's a difference between the, how the world is and how it's supposed to be? And then what are we going to do as a business? What are we going to do as a nonprofit? What are we going to do to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be? And I think that's, you know, that's, those are the places. And I'll tell you, your employees and your shareholders, you know, especially your employees, but your shareholders too, they are stakeholders. They, they, when you've done something selfless to help the world look more like it's supposed to look, people go, that's the kind of company I want to work for. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of leader I want to work for. That's the kind of company I want to do business with is they actually care about our community. And it's not just about selling more products and increasing share, you know, shareholder price, but it's about actually doing good while doing well. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's, I think that's, you know, that is in the end, when you retire and you can look back over your career and say, you know, I helped make this city a better place. I helped uh, human beings know that they were valued. I helped, you know, I helped solve problems. Uh, I helped children get, you know, get an education. I mean, whatever it might be, you know, you guys are doing a great job of, of addressing one of those needs at Reconciliation Services. You saw a need and you said, okay, we want to close the gap here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do at Resurrection, too, in a lot of different ways. And and uh, when we all do that, you know, that that's leadership. And uh, and then our city has changed in positive ways. So I appreciate your podcast. And I appreciate, uh, Father Justin, what you're doing, you know, what you guys are doing to try to help Kansas City look like God's kingdom. And uh, I just I commend you for it and grateful to have a chance to to know you and to um, and to watch and see what you all are doing. Well, the feeling is mutual. And thank you for giving us so much time today and dropping the knowledge that you have, but also sharing your vulnerable journey um, that you've screwed up, that you've repented, that you're trying, that you've said hard things, that you've been silent. All of those things are necessary to admit as we journey together and hold one another accountable, iron sharpening iron. So Adam, thank you for your time today and uh, look forward to possibly having you on the podcast again. And uh, I'm definitely going to go and check out the uh, listening series that you have. Can you call that out one more time? What's yeah, yeah, the name of it? It's the Beloved Community, and it should be on our website. So I think they posted after each Wednesday night. It started a week ago. And your folks might be interested in checking out the sermons, too, from the last three weeks. A Dream Still Deferred. Actually, last four weeks, so a Dream Still Deferred. And then the second one was called uh, Jesus Protests and Repentance. Mm-hmm. And then Emmanuel Cleaver uh, preached one the third week of that series. So this was June 1st, June uh seventh or eighth or something. Uh, Anyways, it's the first three weekends of June. And those are on our website too at core.org. You can find the sermons there. You can find this uh, beloved community uh, sharing there. You can find a Tuesday night uh, Vespers service that I did that has three of our pastors uh, in it where they, people of color who shared their stories as well. Well, Pastor Adam Hamilton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise, hang with me for one second and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I have a favor to ask of you if you did. Uh, If you would go onto YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to this podcast and smash that like button, follow us, hit the little bell icon. It's going to really help us to share this podcast out with more people who are desiring to become social leaders and to further Uh, their journey towards these values that we've been talking about today. And also, I'm excited to tell you about a new 
e-course that's getting ready to launch. It's called The Social Leader, and it's designed especially for people who want to advance their knowledge about the core fundamentals, the essentials of becoming a social leader and embracing the things that we talk about every week on this podcast in their own life. You can find out more by going to thesocialleader.org and fill out a few questions for us, and one of our team's going to reach out to you and see if this course is right for you. So until next week, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Leader Podcast. I look forward to talking to you very soon. <laughs>